Hello, and welcome to the Lake Forest Church Huntersville Sermon Podcast. We are a community of skeptics, spiritual explorers, and longtime followers of Christ. To learn more about who we are as a church and how you can get connected, visit lakeforest.org. Good morning, Lake Forest Church. Great to be with you. Uh, so excited. My name is Aaron. I'm the lead pastor over at our Lake Forest Westlake. I want to say hello to everyone joining us online. Uh, balcony, y'all got the best seats in the house up there. Holy cow, how do we get one of those at Westlake? That is just awesome. Uh, but I'm so excited to be with you today. Mike Moses and I are doing what we call a pastor swap. And we like to do these every now and then. It's a way of, well, one of the things that's cool is you write one sermon and you preach it twice. That's just kind of fun, right? But uh, uh, more than that, we love to get to share because we are part of a family of churches. And you need to know that because one of the things about this family is that we love planting new churches. And so y'all were planted here 20 years ago. Some of you were here for that. And then we, your little brother church, we were planted just five years ago. So if you want to kind of figure out where we are in the family, you're 20, so you're off at college. And we're like that five-year-old sibling that when you're away, we sneak into your bedroom and listen to your Led Zeppelin records and play your Atari 1600, right? That's... You guys, so we kind of go in there and mess stuff up. That's kind of who we are. Uh, all joking aside, we are so honored to be a part of the family with you. And man, there is just some exciting stuff happening on our side of the lake. Uh, many of you will know this, but the Denver area, all up and down the western side of Lake Norman, is just exploding. And there's just growth happening everywhere. And, uh, you know, amazing to see all the folks moving into the area who maybe their story is kind of like yours. They're, they're those folks who would say, I was, I'm somebody who's given up on church, but not on God. And to be able to be a part of starting a Lake Forest church for those kinds of people to have a safe place to come and explore and just ask questions. Uh, it's just a real honor to be a part of that. And you guys have been a part of that. You're a part of sending us, helping support us financially early on, uh, and supporting us even with your prayers uh, and encouragement and friendship now. So just want to say thank you for all that. Uh, super excited to be here with y'all this morning. Mike is preaching over at West. I already told you all that. All right. So let's go ahead and jump in. We are continuing in our series called Superlatives. And I was thinking about this because my youngest son, Jeremiah, is obsessed with superlatives. His favorite words since just a tiny, tiny little boy were the words that end with the letters E-S-T, right? Words like biggest, greatest, mostest. These are his favorite words. He would say things like this to me. He'd say, Dad, Dad, who's the richest? Who's the fastest? Who's the smartest? And of course, the answer to all those questions is, well, Dad. Dad Dad's, the, right? Dad's the right answer to that question. But I remember one time we were driving in the car, and he was in his, his car seat in back. So I'm looking at him in the rearview mirror. I can see his wheels are turning. And so he, he chimes up. He, he asked me this question. He said, Dad, because he loves to compare things, right? He said, Dad, how big is God? Well, that, that's a really interesting question, Jeremiah. I said, well, well, I think God's really, really, really big. And then he started. He said, well, God... Uh, our dad, is God bigger than Los Angeles, which is where we lived at the time? I said, well, yeah, he's bigger than Los Angeles. Uh, is he bigger than the Pacific Ocean? I said, well, yeah, he's bigger than the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and he said, uh, dad, is he bigger than the whole world? I said, well, well, yeah, Jeremiah, he's bigger than the whole world. And then he went silent for a moment. And then he looks at me in the rearview mirror, and I see this wry smile come on his face. And he says this, he says, dad, is God bigger than even you? 
I said, now let's not get carried away here, okay? Like I said, there's some limits to things, Jeremiah. We got to get that. But it's an interesting question, isn't it? Interesting question. How big is God? How big is God? See, here's the reality for many of us, and this is kind of the bottom line up front, in case you need to nod off or check Facebook during the sermon here. Here's the bottom line up front, okay? How big you think God is, the size of your God, how big you think God is will determine the kind of life you live. How big you think God is will determine the kind of life you live. Now, some folks will argue that our idea of God is actually too big, that somehow God is so vast, so eternal, so omnipotent that he could not possibly be concerned with the details of our everyday lives. But the more I thought about this, I, I don't actually think that's our problem. I mean, that kind of that might be a problem for your college philosophy class, but I don't actually think that's our problem in reality. Here's what I think our problem is. I think our problem is that our idea of God is too small. That actually we suffer from what I'm going to call today shrunken God syndrome. Now that was meant to be funny. We need a little more caffeine, don't we? Uh, that's all right. We'll get, we'll get there. We'll get there. Because you see, the truth is, the truth is, that every last one of us suffers from shrunken God syndrome at one time or another. At some point in our lives, we will all face a hardship or a difficulty or an opportunity or a divine encounter that is bigger than what our current resources can handle. If you live life long enough, and by long enough, I mean live into your middle school years, you will face a problem that is bigger than you can handle. Middle schoolers, can I get an amen, right? Middle school's tough. It's tough. It's bigger than what we know how to handle. And if we have a shrunken God, we will not have the resources we need to know how to face that situation. See, if you live life with shrunken God syndrome, you will pray without faith. You will worship without awe. You will suffer without hope. And the result is a life that is ruled by fear and paralyzed by insecurity. Without a great big God, we do not have the resources to handle the problems and challenges that come our way. So, so, is there any hope for those of us today who would say, that's me, Aaron, I suffer from shrunken God syndrome. Well, I think there is some hope. There's some really good news because the scriptures love to tell about these kinds of stories. In fact, the writers of the scriptures never tire of telling stories about a God who is bigger, a God who is able, a God who is stronger than all we could ever face. In fact, these are the writers of the scriptures' favorite kinds of stories to tell. Stories of someone who encountered a great big challenge but who must learn to rely on a God who is big enough to help them. Because, because, how big you think God is will determine the kind of life you live. And so that's where we're headed today. And uh, I want to I look at a story of a guy in the Bible named Gideon. Now, how many of y'all have heard of Gideon before? Quick show of hands, Gideon. All right, so Gideon is the guy, he, he, the Bible's in, in the hotel room is named after him. You know, the Bible in the drawer that you see only when you're looking for the television remote. That, that's Gideon, that's Gideon. Uh, and Gideon's story is um, really a story about a God who wants to show him just how big he really is. Now, Gideon's story is found in the book of Judges. And since uh, we don't have 
Uh, I need to rearrange my notes here, if you'll forgive me. They're still out of order from the previous service. There we go. Uh, Gideon's story comes from the book of Judges, and we don't often talk about the book of Judges, so I want to give you just a little bit of background really quickly. Uh, The book of Judges is actually one giant tragedy. Just think about that story, that Shakespeare play that you had to read in high school. That's kind of Judges, right? And you'll remember from the very beginning of the Bible, God's plan has been this. He wants to form a people that would worship him as their king. He will bless them, and they will be a blessing to the nations. That's God's plan in the very beginning. That's God's plan in the Bible. That's God's plan for you and me today. So when the book of Judges shows up in the Bible, this is where we are at. God has used a man named Joshua to lead his people out of slavery. They've been wandering in the wilderness. Moses led them out. And Joshua is now leading them up to the edge of the promised land. Joshua puts his foot in the river. The river backs up. Holy cow, that's a story for another time. And then they all walk into the promised land, right? The very land that God had given them so they could be a nation and he could be their king. Now, right before they go into this land, right before the book of Judges starts, Joshua gives to God's people the Torah. Now, we can translate the word Torah as the word law, but it's so much more than law. It's a set of guidelines for how God's people can live with him as their king so they can be blessed, so they can be a blessing to the nations, right? That's the whole idea. So, pop quiz time, pop quiz time. How do God's people do at living according to Torah and honoring God in the book of Judges? Terrible! They fail miserably. It's not even like an F plus. It's like an F minus. Do they give F minuses? I mean, they just fail at every turn. They turn away from God and they start worshiping these other gods, the Canaanite gods and Baal and Marduk and all these things, right? And so we see this pattern play out over and over again in the book of Judges. It goes like this. God's people turn away from him. Then it all goes to pot and oppression and the enemies come in. And then God's people cry out to to him and he raises up a deliverer, a judge, a military leader to free them from those enemies. Get the kind of pattern of judges? Now watch this. This is a bit nerdy. That pattern plays out over and over again in the book of Judges. In fact, it plays out 12 times, symbolically once for each tribe of Israel. Interesting. Almost like the Apostle Paul was right when he said, There is no one who is righteous. All have turned away. Okay, so history lesson is over. We've got a little bit of background on Judges. Now I want to introduce you to Gideon. When we first meet Gideon in chapter 6, we quickly learn that Gideon has a problem. In fact, he's got a really, really big problem. His problem is called the Midianites. Now, the Midianites are a neighboring nation. Uh, They were kind of like hell's angels on camelback. Uh, In fact, every year during harvest season, uh, they would ride into town, ACDC blaring on their Harley Camelsons. That's as good as it's going to get today. Just just, uh, just to give you a heads up. That's about, I mean, it's hot outside. You got to, you got to. They ride in and they would ravage the whole town. I mean, they would just, man, they would ransack everything. And every time this happened, the Israelites did exactly what you and I would have done too. They would run for the hills and they'd hide in the caves and wait until all the camelbacks had gone on out. And it had been this way for seven years, over and over and over again. And even though God's people had forgotten about him, God hears their cry for help and he comes to one of the most unlikely of characters, this man named Gideon. And here's what happened next. 
seen one stuck in a pit. Verse 11, let me read this to you. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah. Not Oprah. She's been around a long time, but not that long. Uh, Ophrah, that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now pause here for a second. What's happening? Well, threshing wheat in a wine pit, that, that, that's kind of odd, don't you think? Well, it really is. These, these ancient wine pits were maybe six to ten feet deep. We have a, a picture of an, one from an archaeological site. But, but this is strange because everyone knows that when you go to thresh wheat, you don't do it in a pit, you do it out in the open air where the wind can blow away the chaff, leaving the grain. So what is Gideon doing Threshing wheat, threshing wheat in a, in a wine press like this would be like trying to make coffee in a thimble. It would be a ridiculous process and there would not be enough caffeine. So what is he doing here? What, what's happening? Well, he's afraid. I mean, he's terrified, right? He's scared to death that the Midianites are going to see, they're going to come, and they're going to plunder everything he's got. So Gideon has settled in the pit for a little life with a little God in a little pit with a little bit of grain he can hide from everybody else. But look at what the angel says to him in the next verse, verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, what? The Lord is with you. Interesting. And then he adds these extra two words that almost sounded kind of like a joke. The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior, you Gideon. I mean, the Lord is with you, you mighty wuss, would have been a little more of an accurate statement at this point. But he says, the Lord is with you. But then look at what he says. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. Look, Gideon, I'm not asking you to fake it. I'm not asking you to pretend to be more than you are. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I just love Gideon's response here. It's almost like he thinks he's getting punked, right? Like maybe his buddies are up to something here. Or maybe he's on candid camera. Anybody old enough to remember candid camera? Candid camera folks, right? Or maybe like me, you're in your 40s MTV generation. Remember Ashton Kusher is going to show up and he's going to punk him right here? Hey, this, he thinks this is a joke. And look at he's So, so look at his response. He's like, uh <clears throat> Pardon me, my Lord. <laughs> You've got the wrong dude. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. God, have you seen the Midianites? Have you seen how big they are? They're like an entire tribe of Jeff Cooks. There is no way I can take these guys. I'm the weakest. I'm the smallest. I'm the least. It's like me against Thanos on a camel, and he's got that glove and those stones, and he's going to crush me. Right? This is what he's thinking. But look at how the Lord responds. The Lord answered again, I will be with you. What's the Lord doing? You know, oftentimes I will talk to somebody facing some kind of adversity or challenge in their life. Uh, and sometimes it's financial or, or medical or, or relational. 
and uh, they'll tell about friends who come. And, and these friends are so well-meaning. I mean, they really are. They'll come and try and cheer them up. And they'll say things like, you know, hang in there. You, you can do this. You, you, you can make it through this. And, and remember, the Bible says that God never gives us more than we can handle. And, and I kind of get the sentiment. I understand what they're after there, right? The only problem with what they're doing is that the Bible never actually says that. In fact, the Bible is actually story after story after story of people being given more than they can handle. Welcome to the Bible, right? In fact, the promise of God in the Scriptures is not, is not, is not that we will never face situations beyond our capacity or strength. The promise of God is that He is with us and that He is big enough to help us face whatever difficulties come our way. I remember one time when my daughter was five, uh, she had to go in for her five-year-old shots, you know, mom's dad's, you remember this moment, right? And so I was at work and my wife calls me and she says, uh, Aaron, you, you have to come home during your lunch break. Zoe is a wreck. There's no way I can get her to go to the doctor to get her shots. So I come home on my lunch break and I walk into the living room and, and here's my five-year-old daughter in her favorite pink dress sitting on the floor, pigtails, you know, you, you can picture the scene. And there are tears just dripping off of her chin, right? And she's a strong girl. She's not going anywhere. <laughs> and they're just dripping. So, so I think, okay, I, I know how to do this, right? I can, I'll be, the, I, I'm going to give the dad pep talk. Dads, you know this one? Remember this? So I, I, I get down on the floor because I'm, I'm like the sensitive one in our family. So I get down on the floor. I'm like, oh, Zoe, I, you know, I'm so sorry. L listen, it's not going to hurt. It, it really isn't. It, you'll be fine and, and, and you'll get, you, you won't even feel it. And besides, we can go get some ice cream afterwards. And she just starts bawling all the more. Right? She's not buying it, right? So then my wife comes out of the kitchen, get into the living room. She gets down on the floor and she looks my daughter in the eyes. She takes her hand. And she says, Zoe, it's going to hurt. I will be with you. I'll hold your hand through the whole thing. Are you ready to go? And she looks up at mom. She goes, okay, mommy. <laughs> I'm like, what am I? Like, chop leather, what are you? I, what I realized was I was the one who needed the ice cream. Let's be honest, right? You see, I think God is doing something just like that with Gideon. God meets Gideon in the bottom of the pit, in the midst of his sphere. He takes his hand and he says, Gideon, I'm big enough. Gideon, I'm strong enough. Gideon, I'm holding your hand. Gideon, I will be with you. Will you trust me? Which brings us to scene two, the wet blanket. When we come to scene two, a little bit later on in the chapter, Gideon has stepped up out of the pit. He's up on the normal ground, but he's still not sure. He's still not sure he's ready to trust God. He's still not sure God is big enough. So he decides to give God this little test. He, he's he's going to ask God to prove that he is capable. He's going to ask God to do some magic tricks. Look with me at verse 36. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel, do you see that? If, not when, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. 
Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed out the fleece and he wrung out the dew a whole bowl full of water. Okay, God, that's a cool trick and all. God, don't be mad at me, God. That's really neat. But could we do this one more time? And could you just reverse it? Like, could you, can you just kind of flip the table? Can you make the fleece dry but the ground wet this time, God, right? Allow me just this one more test. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Now, you may have heard this phrase, setting out a fleece, right? Sometimes this will be used in the context of discerning God's will in our lives. And what I want you to notice here, what I want to point out just just for this moment, is that setting out a fleece, at least according to the Bible, is not a positive thing. God had already promised Gideon he would do this. God had already demonstrated his power that he could save Israel. The fleece here was not an expression of trust. The fleece is an expression of doubt. The fleece is an expression of immature faith. Now, sometimes people will use this whole fleece idea kind of in a manipulative way or like a superstitious kind of way. Uh, I love the story Ken Davis tells about a guy who was driving down the road one day when he saw a bakery on the road up ahead of him. And he prayed like this. He said, Lord... If it is your will that I eat a donut, please make there be an available parking space right in front of the bakery. And sure enough, the fifth time around the block, there was a parking space right in in front there, right? You see, the amazing thing is not that God can make a little rug wet and then make it dry. God can do whatever God wants. The amazing thing is that God condescends to Gideon in this moment to meet him right where he is at in the midst of his fear. Why? Because God is committed to growing Gideon's faith. God is committed. We've been in this series based out of Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith chapter from the New Testament. And do you remember what it says about Jesus and faith? It says that Jesus is not only the beginner, the pioneer, he's not only the one who initiates our faith, but he is the perfecter, the completer of our faith. Why? Because God is committed to growing your and my faith. And so, God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, if we're done with all the little magic tricks, I've got something else I want to show you. And that leads us to scene three. Gideon, I want to show you how big I really am. Scene three, I'm calling Let's Do the Math, begins chapter seven, the very next chapter. Gideon has gathered, get this, 32,000 soldiers to fight with him. That's that's not bad. And so you realize that the Midianite army is 135,000. That's a four to one ratio. So Gideon's freaking out. God shows up. First thing God says to Gideon, he says, listen, Gideon, we've got a numbers problem. And Gideon's like, oh, thank you, Lord. I was so worried. I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, four to one, how are we going to do this? Like, these odds are not good at all, God. I'm so glad you see things my way. And God says, Gideon, we got a numbers problem. You have too many people. So what I want you to do, Gideon, is I want you to go and ask all your soldiers who's afraid. And if they say they're afraid, then you go ahead and send them home. So Gideon goes to his soldiers. He says, hey, who's afraid? They raise their hands. They say, okay, all you guys who are afraid, you get to go home. 20,000, excuse me, 22,000 soldiers leave him in that moment. Now he's down to 10,000. Now the odds are 13 to 1. Gideon is not going to ask God again about the numbers problem, right? 
But guess what happens? God comes and he says, Gideon, we still have a numbers problem, to which I imagine Gideon being like, right? he's just not buying this. But look at what happens next. There are still too many men, says the Lord. Take them down to the water and I will sift them. I will sort them there for you. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go, he shall not go. Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog. That's kind of odd. From those who kneel down and drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With these 300 that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Now, why Gideon was supposed to choose the dog lappers is not clear from the text at all, right? I mean, picture, these guys are going, they're getting the water, and they're going, that, that's just fun to do with my can't tell that again. That's the dog lapping, right? And the other guys are just like, whoosh, just bury in. Why he's supposed to choose the dog lappers is not clear from the text at all. Sometimes it'll be taught that, that somehow these guys proved that they were better soldiers because they were more alert, supposedly. The only problem with that reading of the text is that any time the Bible compares people to dogs, it's as if it's the same as when you compare your girlfriend. It, it's just not good, right? It's never good. The Bible does not think highly of dogs. In fact, one Old Testament scholar, a guy named Doug Stewart, puts it this way. Most likely, this idea that the guys who lapped water like dogs drank in a way we could, would consider kind of geeky. These were not the elite troops. These were guys who, uh, who work at Google. Right? Get a feel for this? And, and look, in, in modern days, we need some Google guys in our army, don't we? Because we've got a lot of computers. But in the ancient days, you did not need Google employees as soldiers. The whole point of God winnowing down the troops was to make it clear who the victory would belong to. That the victory would be God's alone. And the hope, the hope was that Israel would then turn back to worship its great big God and break the cycle of sin. So, how does the story end? What happens next? Well, Gideon is standing there. He's looking at the 300 guys. He looks at God. He says, God, there is no way. We are outnumbered 451. God, there is no way this is happening. I can't believe we're doing this. And he waits for God's response. God looks at him and says, Gideon, hold my beer. Look at the very next verse. Gideon and the hundred men with him. Now he had separated them into three groups of a hundred. The hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. That's the middle of the night. It's dark out. Just after they had changed the guard. They, that's Gideon and his soldiers, blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. Now you've got to kind of picture this. They've got these clay jars that they've been hiding their lamps inside of so that as they're approaching the enemy camp, the enemy could not see them coming. Get a feel for that? And then in this critical moment, they take the trumpets in one hand, they smash their jars, exposing their lights, and that's where we're at. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, where's the sword? I got a trumpet and a lamp. All right, anyway, coming back. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men. 
throughout the camp to turn on each other with their own swords. The army fled to that place towards that other place as far as the border of those other places. Now, let me ask you, in the story of Gideon, who won the battle? Well, the Lord did. Who gets claim to this victory? Well, the Lord. How big is Gideon's God? Well, he's big enough to defeat 135 soldiers with nothing more than a 300-member marching band with trumpets and flashlights. That's the truth. And that's the lesson that God was teaching Gideon. That's the lesson God was teaching his people Israel. And that's the lesson that God wants to teach you and me today. Because it really is true. It really is true. That how big you think God is will determine the kind of life you live. And so, maybe the most important question for us to ask this morning, maybe the question we need to ask each other, maybe we, the question we need to ask ourselves is simply this. How big is your God? How big? I've been thinking about this question a lot these last few weeks because just to be honest, this is kind of pastoral confession moment here. Uh, this has been a real tough season for me. And I'm not going to share with you the details. They're not all mine to share. But I, I have just been up against some big stuff in my life that honestly, it just feels bigger than I know how to handle. And, and some of that's personal and some of that's spiritual and, and some of that's professional. And, and it's just, uh, but, but it has resulted in a lot of anxiety and stress for me. And as I've been thinking about this, I keep coming back in my times of prayer, going back to the Lord, and I keep coming back to this question. Aaron, Aaron, how big is your God? How big? Is he big enough to handle these obstacles in front of you? Because you see, the interesting thing is Jesus says it's not the size of our faith. It's not the size of our righteousness. It's not the size of our strength or our talent or our intellect. It is simply the size of our God that makes all the difference. You know how much faith Jesus says we need? About that much, right? Some of you said it. How much? A mustard seed. It's not the size of your faith that makes the difference. It's the size of your God in which you have a mustard seed of faith. Do you see what he's getting at? See, the incredible promise, and, and please hear this today, the incredible promise of Christianity is not, is not that you will never face challenges that are bigger than your own resources or bigger than you can handle on your own. That is not the promise of Christianity. The promise of Christianity is that God, in some mysterious way, but very, very real, can be with us. The environment around you can be swirling out of control, but God can be with you. There can be this inner reality where you experience God as big enough. God is enough for you. He really is. And I've been tasting of that in my own life these last few weeks. I think this must have been what the Apostle Paul was trying to get at when he was in prison and he wrote a letter to some Christians in Philippi. He said, listen, guys, 
I'm in prison. My life is threatened. I don't know if I'm going to make it. But, but, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through Jesus, I can face any situation, be it a threat on my life, be it this imprisonment, be it illness, be it anything. Because Jesus, Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with me. Nobody else can give you this sort of peace. No one. It doesn't come through your circumstances or your talent or your natural abilities. It, no one else can give you this peace. This peace comes from God and God alone. And if you are here this morning and you feel like you're living life in a pit, in fear and anxiety, facing challenges that are bigger than you, hear this invitation from Jesus to you today, to every last one of us today. Jesus says to you, I am big enough. I am bigger than your problems. I am bigger than your failures. I am bigger than your regrets. I am bigger than your past mistakes. I am bigger than your sin and your guilt and your fear and your stress and your worry. And if you will let me, if you will try me, if you will invite me, I will come into your life and I will be your forgiver. I will be your friend. I will be your companion. And yes, I will be your strength because I am big enough. God knows about the Midianites in your life. He does. He's not surprised. But this morning, He says, Will you let me? Will you let me be enough for you? Now, I'm going to invite you to pray with me here in just a moment. And I didn't do this in the first service, but I just feel like this might be important for us. If that's something that resonates with you. Maybe you're feeling up against the wall. Maybe you're facing something bigger than you today. As we pray, I'm going to invite you just to turn your hand right side up in your lap just as a way of offering that challenge to God. If you're comfortable, you don't have to. But maybe you want to do that. Or maybe you came with someone and you know that that person, that friend, that loved one, that family member is facing something that just feels totally overwhelming. And maybe you just want to put your hand on their knee or on their shoulder just to let them know that you know you know just how big of a challenge they're facing today. And as we pray, I want to pray, I want to ask God that even in this moment, in that mysterious way, that somehow He might come and meet us right in the midst of our pits, take our hand and remind us, whisper into the deepest part of our souls, my son, my daughter, my friend, I am big enough. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Oh, Jesus, we have nowhere else to turn. No other God who is big enough to rescue us from the pits in which we find ourselves. So God, right now, I want to pray for all of the Midianite challenges that are represented in this room. All the things that are simply too big, too grand, too challenging, too fear-inducing for us to face on our own. Would you come and meet us even now? Jesus, I pray for marriages and for parent-child relationships where the hurt is bigger than we know how to heal. God, would you be our healer? Would you be big enough? God, I pray for those facing financial challenges, unemployment, or searching for work. God, would you be their provider? Would you be their sustainer? Would you be big enough? God, I pray for those facing physical pain, medical situations, or a big decision in their life. God, would you be big enough? 
And God, I pray for those who are carrying the shame and the regret of pain from their past that they think is simply too sinful, too shameful to be forgiven. God, would your grace be big enough? And finally, God, for all of those facing something greater than themselves, fill us again with the knowledge and hope that you are greater than our fears. You are greater than our sin. You are greater than our doubts. You are greater than death itself. Jesus, today, would you be our great, big, gracious, loving, kind God? We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.